Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. On top of the wood, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Today's passage, Genesis 22, 1 through 19, is one of the great passages in all of scripture. And of course, it's all great. Um, this passage is a story within a story. It captures the whole arc of the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. It summarizes and tells the story of the Lord and of his love for his people in 19 verses. And it's deliberately placed there as a poem written down more than 3,000 years ago, hidden, and today we're going to uncover it and study it together. The whole scripture is written not as a dry textbook. 
because that's not how people are built. We aren't built to read textbooks. Your college professors would disagree. We are built for stories. Our lives are a story. The whole scripture from creation to restoration of creation is, uh, is a story that's being built all the way up to the praise of God and the unification, the reunification of the people of God with our, our king, who is like the sun, who is our very light. And so from Genesis to Revelation, we read a wonderful and a beautiful story. So these verses are a mini story that summarize the whole story of the Bible, not kind of like I just did, but in another story. Because the beauty of the genius of the Holy Spirit is that in inspiring people to write down the scriptures, he wrote into history and into even their own thoughts, his thoughts, and he wrote down who he is in story form. He doesn't say in the Bible simply, I'm God, which means I'm big, I'm wonderful, I'm, I'm a delight to behold, I'm holy, loving, just, forgiving, I uh, will not tolerate sin, etc., etc., I'm merciful. The Bible doesn't quite do that. Um, that would be kind of boring. God made us to be part of the grand story of human history, and he wrote the scriptures as a story. And so as we read this story, we learn who God is in the story as members of the story. So the way to begin here is to put ourselves in the story. And let's read it again through Abraham's eyes. Abraham knew of Adam and Eve. He had walked with God for many years, and he knew God's promises. He knew of the creation. He knew of the terrible fall shortly after creation. He knew of the snake entering the garden. He knew Adam didn't crush the snake's head as it was speaking to his wife. He knew Adam stood by complicitly and in high-handed rebellion against God, he participated and engaged in sin, not himself being deceived. And so all of the seed that Abraham planted, Abraham being, or I mean that Adam planted, Adam being like a tree with fruit and his seed, his children, rose up and after he died like a tree dies and other trees grow until you have a whole forest of people, his seed were forever cursed and we suffer under the fall and we groan under the effects of sin. And Abraham lived in a world full of sin. Most of you remember Abraham's story. It's the story of a man who lived in the Middle East about 4,000 years ago and he was called out from his own people, from his own family, and he lived as a foreigner in another country. He didn't know their language or culture like he knew his own, and he wandered, and he kind of didn't belong. This is Abraham's life story. He knew the promise that had been given of hope that someone would come, one of Adam and Eve's seed, 
somebody would grow up and become he who was mightier than the serpent and the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil. And somebody was coming, and his heel, though bitten by the snake, was powerful enough to crush his head and forever restore the people of God. As Abraham walked with God for the first 100 years of his life, because he lived to be 175, he meditated on the, the scriptures not yet written down, but passed down to him uh, from his parents and has taught him by the Lord, because the Lord himself taught Abraham his own ways and his thoughts and spoke with him. So Abraham knew that he was suffering. He knew that he and his family were out of place. He knew that they were called out from where they had came from. And he knew that around him lived the Canaanites, a wicked people who hated their children, who, who, who worshipped idols of all kinds, all these like demonic idols, and they would, they would even take their children time and time again and take their children's lives as part of their worship of these idols, a most disturbing and disgusting practice. And partly for this reason, God had called Abraham out of his previous homeland to wander in this land to give birth to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Joseph and his brothers who would go down to Egypt and be enslaved for 400 years in another land not their own. And then God would bring them out and bring them back into this land, we said, to dispossess these Canaanites because God's judgment would take hundreds more years to fill up and he would bring his full wrath upon these people living around Abraham 400-something, maybe 500-something years before, right? So this is how Abraham's story fits into the broader story of the whole Bible. But even after God judges these wicked people that Abraham lived for, for decade after decade in their midst, even after that, the, the snake crusher had not yet come. The one to be the perfect sacrifice had not come. So as Abraham uh, knew his wife and, and grew up in a household of no children, a great disappointment to both of them. He taught those who were in his household, servants, employees, the ways of God. He taught them that Adam and Eve, that Adam had had this great fall and rebellion against God, and that God had told them, in the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. These are the kinds of things Abraham had been thinking about his whole life and teaching his employees who kind of like a family, but again, he had no kids. This huge disappointment. And God had promised him, from your seed, would all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham anticipated in faith that God would fulfill this promise to Adam and Eve that the snake crusher, the serpent crusher would come and liberate. But at the same time, Abraham participated in worship of God by making offerings and vows and sacrifices. And it was his tradition uh, to, to take an animal and sacrifice it to the Lord. Instead of taking an animal and taking its life and then 
uh, it being butchered and eaten, like we would do, uh, he would take an animal and, and take its life and lay it on an altar and let it be on top of the wood burned to the Lord. This was part of his act of worship to God, right? Offering the best that he had to the Lord. And he remembered that Adam and Eve had been told, in the day of you, you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And he remembered Adam and Eve's first encounter with death. It was not their own. God took an animal and killed it. It was the first death. And he, he cut off its skin, its hide, and he put it on Adam and Eve, and they wore the dead skin, the dead hide, the dead pelt of this animal, probably a lamb from the Garden of Eden. And they wore a constant covering of their shameful nakedness, a covering, of their, a covering up of their sin, a reminder of the death that was required that, that their nakedness would be covered. These are the things Abraham meditated on for decades and taught those in his household. And so here we have, in the midpoint of Abraham's life, he has a son, Isaac, who is probably a young boy or a young man at the time, and God calls to him and he says, Abraham. Abraham says, here am I. He presents himself to the Lord willingly and available, ready for the Lord to tell him the next chapter in the wonderful but long story of God revealing his character in his actions and dealings with Abraham. And Abraham is probably expecting God to say something great about his son Isaac, who has just recently been finally born after he was a hundred years old, after all this long waiting for God to to unfold these promises. And he's probably expecting God to say something like, um, so the time has come, and good news, your son Isaac is the one that Adam, Eve, Seth, all of the generations before you have been waiting for. Your son Isaac is going to be the deliverer. There's going to be no more death. We're going to take all that away. The time has come to, to make the world go from mostly evil to, to righteous and for me to walk with man again. And that is not what God said. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Feel what Abraham heard. God said instead to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which is about where Jerusalem is, and offer him there, the Hebrew word is, as an ascension offering, or an offering that goes up like smoke. And offer him there as an ascension offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Do you feel that? Can you imagine? So Abraham got up first thing in the morning, started his car, he saddled his donkey, he took two young men with him, two of his employees, and his son Isaac. 
and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, for the ascending offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. It doesn't say God said anything else to him. What do you think he was thinking as he was getting ready to leave that day and go on this three-day trip? What do, you, what do you think he was thinking? Were his eyes dry? Did he weep the whole time? I don't know. How was he struggling to interpret God's promises, which were, through Isaac, all the world, all the countries that will come in the world will be blessed? How is he, how is he reconciling this? Give your son to me, Give him over to me, his whole life, everything. He's going to come up to me. And you'll be here. But previously, somehow, he'd been told all of the countries of the world would be blessed through Isaac. That's, a, that's, some, that's some bad news. And this is a tough one to reconcile. And this is what Abraham was wrestling with. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes because he was going up into the mountains. He lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What extraordinary faith. Abraham was utterly confident that somehow, even out of the death of his son, be becoming an offering to the Lord, that somehow God was going to raise his dead son, bring him back to life, and send him back home that very day. What an extraordinary man Abraham was. What a wonderful thought. You see, he knew the goodness of the Lord. I can't even imagine being asked to give up the life of my son or my daughter. That's an extraordinary thing. But he, he was so fixed in his hope in the, in the promises of God and his knowledge of who God had already shown himself to be through the story of human history unraveled so far. He was totally rested in his confidence that the Lord would, well, surely he'll just raise the dead. No problem, said Abraham. So Abraham tells his servants to stay behind. And look at Isaac now. Look at this through Isaac's eyes. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And as he tied it on his shoulders, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, just like he had responded to the Lord three days before, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Look at Abraham's cool confidence in the sweet goodness of the Lord. He's fully anticipating the imminent death of his own boy. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The Hebrew reads exactly, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, 
my son. So they went, both of them, together. He's expecting both of them to come back. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. Again, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Put yourself in Isaac's shoes. Isaac wasn't fighting against him. He probably didn't yet know what was about to happen. But here, as we read these words, the moment as it dawns on Isaac that he is the offering of worship. Hear it. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. Imagine how tenderly and lovingly he laid him on this altar. He laid him on, altar, on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Just stop there and think about that. What was Isaac doing when, when he was being bound and gently and lovingly, tenderly laid on the wood? What was Isaac doing and thinking? Isaac, according to what we see here, was quiet. It seems that even in the turmoil of his spirit, somehow he was at rest in his spirit. These two things are going on in Isaac at the same time. Think of the, the loving care of his father as he prepares to worship by giving up the one he loves. Abraham has heard the voice of his heavenly father, and he, a father, is, is giving back to the Lord what has wonderfully been given to him. Even in his old age, an impossible miracle that Isaac was ever born. His wife was, I can't remember, in her 90s. She was way past menopause. It was truly an impossible miracle. And having already seen the impossible, this man is so fixed on the goodness and the glory and the sweetness and the beauty of the Lord that he's thinking, yeah, yeah, we'll do whatever you ask. God never intended Isaac to die, not for one minute, not for one second. So was God tricking Abraham? No. Don't let your minds go there. What had God told Abraham? Something, and he was about to tell him the rest. For the first, like, 90 years of his life, he hadn't told Abraham that he was going to give him a boy. And then he said, you're going to have a son. And then now he's telling him a little bit more. He's not tricking him. He's not being wicked towards Abraham. He's, he knows that Abraham fully knows who the Lord is. And look at this through the Lord's eyes now. The Lord is completely confident that this man who's been called out and has heard his voice, knows who he is. And he gives him a little bit more information. It's just enough for him for the next three days. It's just the information he needs to get through the next three days and go up to this mountain and prepare to worship the Lord by giving up everything he had ever hoped for, everything he ever had, the one who he truly loved, his only begotten son.
And then, at that moment, as Abraham has already come to the full point of worshiping the Lord, he is totally resigned to wait and see what God will do. Then, God says, Abraham, Abraham. It says, but the angel of the Lord, or literally the messenger of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said his name now twice, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, just like he had answered the Lord three or four days before, just like he had answered his son on the way up to the mountain, he said, here I am. Hear his voice. Listen to what he just said. He said, here I am. What he's saying is, I am all yours. I'm all in with this thing you're doing, God, this thing you're doing in the world, this thing with, with restoring the world and bringing your glory and speaking your name and filling the world with a people and my seed will be a blessing to all nations. Abraham's all in. He's like, yes, got it, Lord. I'm here, I'm with you. Just what's the next thing for me now? And here, God gives him enough information to get him through the next 75 years of his life. Sometimes God doesn't tell you everything you want to know right away. And sometimes in the middle of great suffering, we cry out to the Lord and we, we instead of like I said, don't go there, we go there and we say, well, God, how could you do this to me? I, I hate you. Don't go there. Take what the Lord's given you today. Receive it as enough food for you to eat today. Don't think that tomorrow you'll be hungry and starve to death. He will give you more bread tomorrow. The word of God is the bread that we need. And we are about to see how Jesus himself is the only begotten son of God, the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven to satisfy all our needs. He is the living word of God, and this is the written word of God. And today, I assure you, God will give you enough word for today. And tomorrow, you'll have enough word for tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. What was the Lord thinking in that moment? He was deeply pleased that here was a man whom God had given the best of his promises. Abraham was the recipient of the best promises God had more than anybody else on earth. He was the most favored and most blessed person on the planet. And in him, God was deeply pleased. And surely knowing the Lord abhors the the sacrifice of children. The Lord never intended for Isaac to die, not from beginning to end. It wouldn't have mattered how Abraham would have answered the Lord. Isaac would not have died, right? Abraham just didn't have enough information to be sure that he would live and keep living instead of die and then be raised from the dead. So in this moment, the Lord is deeply pleased with his servant Abraham who's heard his voice and responded in faith. And hear it, hear it in how God speaks to him. Listen to God's word. This is the messenger of Yahweh 
coming down from heaven, speaking out of heaven to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham, of course, says, here I am. Like we've already seen, he's all in. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. This is like probably a male lamb. Right there behind him, just like he said to his son minutes or hours ago, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. There it was. Caught in the thicket by its horns. Uh, uh, a ram whose who's only defense and power, I mean, it's like a sheep, right? You know, sheep are, I mean, they get like eaten by wolves and bears and stuff, right? So um, if you've ever been around a ram, especially an aggressive male ram, um, you know they're actually quite intimidating. If you YouTube a video of something like, man gets chased by ram, you'll see that a big strong man is quite no match for a charging ram. With its horns, when it starts charging and ducks its head down, it can defend itself quite capably, right? But this ram, by the source of its strength, by its own glory and power, that the horns at the strength of his head, it was caught in the thicket. The, the, the thorns or branches or whatever vine was, was wrapped around its horns and it was caught by its own head. The Lord himself had provided this lamb. Abraham looked up and he saw it and he took this animal and, he, and its life was taken and it was offered up on the altar that Abraham had prepared. On the altar which, figuratively speaking, he was on. He was giving everything. Think about the pleasure of the Lord in the offering of one of his servants, of you, when you give everything to him. How sweet and pleasing are your prayers when in the midst of suffering, and of not understanding the big picture. And the big picture is always a good big picture. The scripture says that he knows the thoughts and intentions he has for us, those of a hope and a future. Even though that hadn't been written down in Jeremiah yet, Abraham knew that verse, didn't he? He knew that. Um, it says that his thoughts towards us are for good and not for harm. It says that there's no condemnation for us who are his people. And it says that he works all things, including the worst things in our life, the, the most suffering we've ever had or are having or will have. He takes all of the brokenness, all of our own sin, even Adam's rebellion against him. And he takes that and he gathers together the ashes and he gathers together the broken pieces. And he, the master artist of the, the, the painting of history, the, the master author of the story of God revealing his character and his salvation through the story of history, he takes all of our brokenness and he is the only one, 
he is mightily able to bring it all together and make us a holy living people to give us back life from the dead. Abraham had seen a pattern beginning in the oral tradition passed down to him in Genesis. It might have been written down, I don't know, of Adam and Eve. He saw this lamb in the Garden of Eden killed so that Adam and Eve didn't have to die. And their shame was covered. This is the gospel. This is the mercy of the Lord. And they had received a promise. I will send one who will undo what you've done. Oh, and will he ever. He himself had been offering um, animals that God had made in, in worship. You know, it's like kind of like taking your, your car or your house and saying, you know, I'm going to take this part of my property, this part of my livelihood, my food, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to reserve this, and I'm going to put it on an altar, and I'm going to say, well, this is yours. And what that does is it says, figuratively, everything I have is yours. So now God had asked him to give up everything, and he was quite willing to. And then God gave him the rest of the story and unfolded the final chapter of hope. And he said, after Abraham had called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. See, this was what Abraham did here, what Isaac did here, became known through history and was passed down. And people even started saying, well, obviously God will provide and he'll do it right here. This was like their song and refrain. You know, they would, people would just say, well, yeah, on the mountain of the Lord, it'll be provided. And many people for generations to come became confident that the Lord will provide. We will see that the Lord never intended for Adam and Eve and our help, their helpless race to stay locked into future death with no hope of resurrection, we will see that the Lord himself is the Lamb. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Stop right there. Chapter 22, verse 1. It says that God tested Abraham and told him to go give God back the son that had been given him. Here, the, the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, is talking to Abraham. Is that an angel? Like, did you think that was an angel? This person who's speaking is not an angel. Angel means messenger. Um, so we're going to say a messenger here, and we're going to find out who it is. This messenger is none other than the Lord himself. It's clearly Jesus. It's clearly Jesus coming down out of heaven and bridging the gap between heaven and earth in Abraham's greatest point of need in his life. And he is coming down and providing a lamb. And we're going to see how this is structured as a poem that's meant to show us that Isaac was never intended to die. Isaac was not intended to be the, the son sacrificed. The title of this message was God provides a lamb to save a son. 
And we're going to see, as we look at the parallel structure um, in this passage, we're going to see that a son was provided to make us the sheep, the lambs of God's flock. But Abraham didn't see all that. Instead, he spent about the next 50, 60, 70 years of his life until the day of his death meditating on what just happened. Think about that. Put yourself in his shoes. And for some of you, you've been in a place that felt like that. Meditate now on the goodness of the Lord. Meditate on the certain hope that we have with our God in heaven, that all the people of God have. So here we are about 4,000 years later. We're reading this and we've seen the rest of the story. But before we get there, we've looked at this through Abraham's eyes. We've looked at it through Isaac's eyes. We've looked at it a little bit through God's eyes. But now let's just think about how the text reads. Did anybody think this got a little repetitive? Did anybody notice like repeated words and phrases? Did anybody think that the person who wrote Genesis down wasn't a very good writer? Okay, I, I have thought that before, not lately. So we have previously talked about chiasms. This passage is a chiasm. It's, a, it's an X-ism. Chi is the, Greek, the name for the Greek letter X, right? So let's call it an X-ism. And we talked before about how you can write a passage, you can write a story, and you can structure it by repeating the beginning at the end. So think of a big X, the beginnings at the, the tip of the X, and then you get to the middle of the story, which is the main point, and then you repeat yourself again at the end. So we're supposed to notice that this is repetitive. We're supposed to take out our highlighters and highlight the repeated words and phrases. And then we're supposed to um, like graph it and write it out on a page and write the, the repeated words and phrases. And this has many. Uh, I count uh, like more than 15 of them repeated. And in your outlines, you have this poem already diagrammed. So if you would, if you have an outline, would you pull it out and take a look at it? This is not a repetitive poem. The author of this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses. Moses wrote this down, and Moses was educated in the best classrooms in the world. He was educated in all the wisdom and literature of the uh, wealthy and extraordinary advanced civilization of ancient Egypt. And I guarantee you he had had a literature class one type of poem that the ancient, uh, ancient people used to write in was called this chiasm, this X-ism, this X marks the spotism. And when he wrote this down under the inspiration and guidance of God's own spirit, he structured this and repeated certain words and phrases in order to draw our attention to first to Isaac and then to the one who would come after Isaac. It may be that Moses, as he wrote this down, didn't even fully understand how, what he was writing. But in faith, Moses wrote 
waiting for the new Isaac, the new lamb, the future lamb of God who was to come into the world, who would be offered in the place not of Isaac alone, but of all mankind. We said that this uh, passage is a story within a story, and it summarizes God's history of redeeming and restoring us, his people. So as you look at this outline, you'll see letters, A's or B's, in front of each line. The first three are marked A1, A2, A3, and the last three are marked A1, A2, and A3. So A1 um, is repeated later again in A1. See the parallelism. God speaks to Abraham and commands him to sacrifice Isaac. Angel of Yahweh, who we said is Jesus, is God himself, Angel of messenger of Yahweh speaks to Abraham about not refusing to sacrifice Isaac. That's repetition. It goes together. A2, right at the top, Abraham rises and takes young men and Isaac. Go back down to the bottom, A2, Abraham arose and returned to young men. That's parallel. That's deliberate. This isn't a boring writer repeating himself. You may have heard a boring person speaking a sermon and repeat himself, but... Um, This is more deliberate. A3, Abraham arose and goes to the place God had told him at the top. Now down at the bottom, A3 again, Abraham arose and went to Beersheba. That's parallel. That's deliberate. These go together. This tells us the author of this is drawing our attention to the middle of the X, and that's where the treasure lies. But if you'll just look at the whole outline, you see there's a B1, B2, B3, B4, B5, then back to B4, then B3. And then again, the next section is labeled B1, B2, B3, B4, B5, and then back out to B4 and B3. So in the past, we've examined a passage where God said something, then he got to the meat, the main point, the meat in the middle of the buns, the the middle of the X where the treasure is, the main point of his passage, and then he repeated himself again. This passage is not a regular... Did I just go... Um, This passage is not a regular chiasm. It's a... This X has a double treasure at the middle. This is a carefully written, complex poem... So bear with me as we unpack this. Everything labeled uh, in the first section, B1 through B5, and then B4 and B3 again, is about Isaac. The rest of it is about the new future Isaac, the one who will really take Isaac's place. The point of this passage is the one who is coming. In A1, Abraham sees the place where God told him and goes to worship or B1. In the next B1, if you look down right at the middle of the page, Abraham and Isaac arrive at the place God told him and builds an altar of worship. That's parallel. You see the structure? Looking at B2, Abraham takes wood and puts it on Isaac. At the next B2, Abraham takes the wood off Isaac and puts Isaac on the wood on the altar. That's deliberate. That's parallel. You see the hidden structure in this passage. This is a really complex and beautiful poem. It's not a rhyming poem. It's a structure poem. B3, Abraham takes fire and knife and both go together. 
Look down at the other B3, farther down, just past the middle of the page. Abraham takes the knife. That's parallel. Then the first B4, Isaac speaks saying, my father. Look down at the, the B4, a little bit past the middle of the page. Angel of Yahweh speaks saying, Abraham, Abraham. Guys, what does Abraham mean? Father of I'm like a multitude of many nations, right? Abraham's name actually means like father. This is a play on words. This is part of the poem. So his son Isaac says, my father. So that probably would have, that, the Hebrew word for my father probably would have sounded a little bit like his name, Abraham. So that's kind of like rhyming. Then Abraham replies at the first B5, Abraham replies, here am I. At the second B5, three-quarters of the way down the page, Abraham replies, here am I. You're seeing the pattern. Since this is hard to um, hear this in a sermon, but you have the outline in front of you, I want to move on, but let's... um, But you see that this this is clearly a parallel poem. The 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 double center of the X, the middle of this double... Uh, chiasm poem is first about Isaac being offered and second about the angel of the Lord coming down from heaven and providing that lamb. So I don't want to belabor this too much in case anybody's listening to this. This would be hard to listen to. I hope it's not hard for you to listen to. When we read the scriptures, it's our joy and responsibility to take time to deeply read it. It took somebody probably a long time to figure out this poem that has been hidden in the scriptures for centuries. This is beautiful. The word of God says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to seek it, to to find it out. We are kings on earth as Christians. And it is our joy and responsibility to study the scriptures deeply and take time and meditate on these things. The first thing we do is put ourselves in the story. Look at it through the eyes of the people to whom it was first happening. And then look at it through the Lord's eyes. Look at it in the context of the whole broader storyline of the scriptures. This is just like chapter 3. And there are many more chapters to come. Think about what it was like to be there in chapter 3 and to know the goodness of God in the midst of great suffering and to be totally certain of his promise and of God's ability to raise the dead. So we've read the story. We've looked at it through each person's eyes. We've looked at the structure of the poem and how it's, like a, it's structured like an X, like, a, like the X on a treasure map marking the main point in the middle. And we saw that it's a double main point and that Isaac, this isn't all about Isaac, even though to Isaac he probably thought he's right at the middle of this story. The main point of this is Isaac never died. Isaac was never supposed to die. He was never going to die. God always was going to provide a lamb. 
even if we had never looked at this and looked at its poetic structure to try to figure out uh, the deeper meaning. The deeper meaning is the same as the obvious meaning in this poem. The obvious meaning is God will provide himself a lamb. Now let's look at the parallels between Isaac, the only son of Abraham who was replaced with a lamb that took his place and died for him, and the only son of God who took away the sins of the world and died for us that we might be healed, that we might live. Isaac and his father Abraham are like a picture of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, and God the Father. Jesus, like Isaac, knew his father and trusted him. Jesus, like Isaac, obeyed his father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was sweating like drops of blood and, and asking his disciples to stay with him and pray with him, but they left him and fell asleep. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is experiencing the fulfillment of what Abraham experienced in these days leading up to preparing to offer up even his only son. Jesus asked the father, is there another way? <laughs> Could there be another lamb? But Jesus obeyed his father and went quietly. The prophet says, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. As we read in the gospels, fulfilled. Jesus, the, the real lamb, the lamb that that lamb Abraham discovered behind him out of nowhere that he already knew God would provide. Now, at a moment in Israel's history when they don't expect Jesus to come and save them in that way, boom, he's there. The time is right. He didn't open his mouth. He went to trial and didn't try to defend himself. He needed no defense. He knew why he had come. He had come for you and me. Jesus depended on his father's every word. It said, I only do what I see my father doing, Jesus said, as recorded in the Gospels. Like a new and better Isaac, the prophetic fulfillment of a story that God somehow awesomely wrote into history of Isaac trusting his father and listening to his father's words and doing what his father said, even when it meant experiencing something terrible. Jesus was willing. The point of this isn't be like Isaac. The point of this isn't Abraham had faith, you had faith. That's, that's good. That's, that's something we can get from this. The point of this isn't Jesus had extraordinary faith, be like Jesus. The point of this is we can't do this. We, like Isaac, were as good as dead. But we, like Isaac, have been taken off the altar of sacrifice and we've been buried with him in death and raised in, in baptism um, like a death and raised with him into newness of life. And this lamb, Jesus, has been laid on the altar that you might live. Jesus, like Isaac, carried the weight of the wood that his father put on his shoulders. After Jesus had been whipped, they laid the cross on his shoulders. He was carrying the own, 
that he was carrying the instrument of his own death on his own back. Just like about 2,000 years before, Isaac had carried the wood that should have taken his life, right? And just like Isaac 2,000 years before, the cross was taken off Jesus' back and Jesus was placed on the cross. You saw in the passage how the author deliberately made this play on words and said, you can look at your, you can look at your outline. Abraham takes wood and puts it on Isaac. And then later, Abraham takes wood off Isaac and puts Isaac on the wood. All of this is written into the scriptures poetically, prophetically, deliberately, because God loves foreshadowing, and God loves giving us hints of hope in the wonderful future that we have as one people of God, saved by this good news, this gospel, that God loves you and freely gives himself for you. Therefore, because he did that, we are able to live and we are empowered to freely give ourselves to him. Isaac was as good as dead. He didn't complain or bargain or plead. Like Isaac, but as a new and better Isaac, Jesus is just confident that God can raise the dead. The Son of God is utterly confident that he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be raised from the dead. And that he is. And there he stands in heaven, praying for you and me, that we would be strengthened with power to believe and to know him. Come to the scriptures and know him. And know this author of life, this deliverer from death, who in the middle of our suffering and our pain and our shame and our nakedness, doesn't kill an animal. The blood of an animal can never take away sin. We needed someone better than... Animals don't substitute for people. That doesn't even make sense. We needed the ultimate person, the ultimate man. It had to be none other than the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, God become man to do what we never could have done, and that is exactly the God we worship and praise. Meditate on these things the rest of your life, the rest of the decades of your life, and teach them to your children. This God, in him we have all hope. This God is worthy of all our praise. We have no confidence in things like, I'm a pretty good person, I've been to church for a long time. I'm all good. The song we sang this morning was, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. And in him, in this Jesus is all our confidence. And he is who makes us holy and has cleansed us from every past sin, every sin now and every future sin and in him we live and stand together as one people, united with him forever. And through his power, we, like Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead, the first one to rise from the dead and stay alive, we also, after we die, having poured out our lives like an offering, 
we also will rise from the dead. So set your hope fully on this, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love your gospel. We love your good news. We love that you wrote down, we love that you gave us a book from you for us to read every day. So Lord, help us to desire to read these things and somehow supernaturally enable us to understand them and to see shadows of your son Jesus in Genesis, to see shadows of your son Jesus in Samuel and in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms, in Ezekiel and Daniel. Let us perceive your glory in the crucifixion of your son for sinners, for there's no other greater glory about you revealed than the glory of your grace. Yes, your grace, as demonstrated in the crucifixion of your son for sinners. And he was lifted up as an offering And with him, we offer ourselves. So now, Lord, fill us with delight in you and give us great pleasure as we read and eat your sweet words. Let your words be like fresh baked bread in our mouth every morning. Your words are like honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. There's nothing better in the whole world to think about than you and your good news, and this gospel, and this gospel that tells us that in you we may confidently place all our hope, no matter how limited our sight is, and no matter how bad things seem. So as we move forward, we covenant together to place our hope in you and to not give in to fear. So Lord, empower us to do this. To the glory and the praise of Jesus, amen. Amen.